January 1982 was a bitter beginning to the new year. This is one of the worst weather emergencies we've had in living memory. Just one week in, widespread blizzards swept across the country. Roads blocked with snow and abandoned cars. Sculpting snowdrifts of up to 10 feet high and cutting off entire communities as they passed. But by Wednesday, the 20th of January, 1982, a slow thaw was underway. And as the country started to warm up, life started to return to normal. But for Bill Maher, that day will forever be frozen in time. Because that was the last day he saw his dear friend, Charles Self, alive. I got a phone call from a mutual friend in London and he said to me, Charles Self has been murdered. He said, get your secretary to go out and buy a newspaper. I didn't know the gruesome details or anything, you know. I mean, I, I was just horrified. I mean, it was my mate who I'd been with the day before, you know. Couldn't believe it. It's been over 40 years since the front page of that newspaper confirmed Bill's worst fears. His friend was gone and he had met a brutal end. On the morning of January 21st, 1982, Charles Self's body was found lying in a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs in the South Dublin Mews he lived in. His killer has never been found. None of it made sense. It was unbelievably shocking. I'm Frank Graney, host of Inside the Crime, an exclusive true crime podcast for Newstalk, and this is the story of the Charles Self murder. Join us as we pour over all the evidence and speak to those who knew and loved Charles, as well as the detective who turned the whole case on its head. Charles's killer has spent long enough in the shadows. Will this finally bring whomever did it into the light? Bill! Bill, how's it going? We brought some. We brought some. Would you like a cup of coffee or tea? They probably did lunch, so I was only interested. Bill Marr has just joined us in the Bailey, a cafe and bar just off Grafton Street in the heart of Dublin City. In 1982, it was one of only a handful of gay-friendly bars in Dublin. It's hard to believe it now, but back then, being gay, or at least the act of being gay, was illegal in Ireland. So there weren't actually many places where gay men and women could meet and socialise in peace. It was here that Bill saw Charles for the last time, and given that the Bailey was where their friendship blossomed, it felt appropriate to meet him here for a chat. The Bailey in 1982, I'd imagine, looked very different than the Bailey we're sitting in today, 40 years later. Is it fair to say or to describe it as um, as, a, as a mixed bar in the sense that there were a few bars around Dublin back in the 1980s that were exclusively for gay people or exclusively attended by gay people, whereas the Bailey was a mix of gay and straight people who used to drink and socialise here? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think I would described it then as like fringe trendy, you know. I mean, it was... Uh, sort of uh, you had musicians artists 
gay people would, would come in here quite a lot, mainly in the early evening. And then Saturday lunchtime was known as being predominantly gay, you know, from one till half past two. We can see now in, in the Bailey they're just preparing for, for lunch. But back in the 80s, I don't know if it even had a kitchen, but certainly if it did, it was more booze than food that was consumed here in the Bailey. I don't remember lo- having lunch here now, to be honest. If they did a lunch menu, I'd say it was like light, maybe salads and things or sandwiches. But uh, I came more more for the booze than the food, to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, tell us then about Charles. He's the reason that we're sitting here today um, having a chat. Um, can you remember when you met Charles and how you met him? Uh, I met Charles in 1980. And uh, he was probably on the edge of a group that I, I sort of socialised with. And I wasn't particularly close to Charles, but... Um, how we really bonded was my father bought me a car down the country because I'd got a job that required that you had to own a car. And my father bought me this car down the country in Tipperary and I drove it back up to town on Sunday night in time to go for a pint. And I was driving past a pub called the, I think it was called the Clarendon Inn on Clarendon Street. It's now Bar Rua. And it was gay at the time, or gayish, and Charles was coming out the door just as I drove by, and I remember putting his hand up to his head and letting out an exclamation, you know, because he thought his car had been stolen and that I was driving, you know, so I stopped and we got Pally after that. I mean, the car was very distinctive. And you, and you have, I was about to ask you to describe it, you've actually brought a little little model of it so it's a, a corgi renault 5 ts and the color i think was probably what set it apart from yeah most it was cars a the yellow with the graduated stripe along the side of it and it was so distinctive to be honest that people never looked at the number plate and i could often be parked around town and i'd come out and there's a note pinned on my um windscreen thinking it was charles and vice versa you know so Charles steps out of the bar and he sees you whizzing by in this bright yellow Renault 5. He thinks you've just pinched his car. And by the sounds of it, that kind of solidified your friendship. Not that you'd stolen his car, because to be clear, it was your own car. <laughs> it was my own car, yeah. And how did the fr- friendship develop from there then, Bill? I don't know. Just we'd meet in the Bailey, predominantly. I mean, that's where we would have socialised mostly in those days, you know. And um, then I eventually moved into the Muse. I moved in there for six months. But, I mean, we went to London on a few, one or two trips together, and I drove the yellow car over. We'd be in touch nearly every day. We just got on well. There was no involvement romantically or anything like that. We were just, just pals. Charles Benedict Self was born in England on Valentine's Day, 1949, but moved to Glasgow to live with his aunt after his mother died when he was just a boy. He loved the arts and he had a great eye for detail, so it came as no surprise when he went on to become a very talented set designer. In the 1970s, while working for the BBC in Scotland, he was headhunted by RTE's then head of design, Alpha O'Reilly, who managed to convince him to move to Dublin to take up a job with RTE. Unsurprisingly, his career flourished there. He quickly became the main set designer on The Late Late Show, 
and just weeks before his murder, he worked on the Twink Christmas Spectacular, which was a huge success. He seemed to have the Midas touch, and you just knew you were in safe hands if Charles was working on your show. You can listen to them on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. All you have to do is search for The Pat Kelly Show. My thanks to our team, editor Eva Bradley, senior producer Claire Darnley, producer Mike Hogan, researcher JJ... We're in Marconi House, the home of Newstalk, and that is the unmistakable voice of Pat Kenny. He's one of ours now, but back in 1982, he was a rising star in RTE, and he remembers Charles well. In 1982, I was doing uh, studio programmes. One of them was called Survey, and Charles Self was the designer on that. And that would be one of the the shows that he worked on jointly with um, myself and my director. Designers had the challenge of presenting all sorts of different uh, graphical images and physical images to the viewers at home. And for them, the the fun was, oh, this week I'm doing a sporting set. I know nothing about sport, so let me try and design something for that. Or this week I'm doing a set for the toy show. I I don't have any kids. How am I going to do that? And that's the great challenge uh, for a great designer, which is what Charles was. With any uh, crew, you, you, when you look at who you're going to be working with, you, you know, sometimes you say, wow, that's great. I've got him or her or oh, not him, not her, please. You, you know, because there are different degrees of skills and talents and so on. So everyone would have their, their favourite crew that they'd really most like to work with, whether it's a floor manager, a sound manager, a vision mixer, whatever it might be. You'd have the people that you loved working with and then the people about whom you'd be less enthusiastic. When Charles Self was assigned to your show, you knew you're in good hands. He was very, very good. Do you want me to put on the cans or? Yeah. Alan, would you mind just come round so that you're straight into this mic here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. A little bit closer, if that's all right. Alan Farkerson was another colleague of Charles's. In 1982, he was an assistant designer at RTE. Ortiz's design department was a hub of activity and creativity, where people could find themselves, express themselves, and most importantly, be themselves. As a young, aspiring designer, Alan looked up to Charles, and here he explains what made him so good. I think he had a great sense of, I suppose, spatial intervention. He thought very much in three dimensions. Often, if somebody asks me what I do for a living and I tell them, they they say something like, so so you do the backdrops. And you try to explain it's not just about designing a background, it's about designing a three-dimensional space and a functioning three-dimensional space, not just for performance, but for performance plus cameras, plus cameras, plus sound, plus an environment that can both technically work um, and and create the kind of imagery that is appropriate to the, the show. And I don't know that he ever got that wrong. Uh, he had an amazing colour sense as well. Um, I do remember his speed as well. He was charged with designing The Late Late Show, uh, which is a fairly big job and obviously one of the more prestigious jobs uh, within the organisation at the time. Uh, I was in on a Saturday because I think I, I, I can't remember why I had um, 
possibly a program in the studio that I was minding. Uh, and Charles had a deadline of Monday to design the Late Late Show set. And as he did quite often, he partied quite a lot. And I think he had been partying pretty much all week, if not for the past, previous two weeks or something. And he came in, I shared an office with him at that stage. He came in, he designed the set in a day, what would take probably two weeks at least, kind of on the drawing board and talking things through. So he met his deadline. <laughs> and that was an iconic set too. It was quite, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's Charles, the designer. You guys worked very closely together by the sounds of it. You shared an office. Um, how did the friendship develop from there? Um, I mean, there was a lot of socialising within work around that time as well. <laughs> um, you know, it was unremarkable to go down to Madigan's was the favoured pub gone now in Donnybrook uh, for lunch. And uh, again, different worlds. There was the holy hour where the pubs closed and they often closed with you still in in them. Um, that might have happened once or twice, uh, particularly during the summer, because things wound down quite a lot during the summer. Um, so, I mean, that's probably where the friendship would have started off. Uh, I mean, the whole the whole of RTE, but particularly the design department, I think, was very gregarious. Um, and we all, f for the most part, partied together quite a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, he He was something of a party animal, I suppose most of us were. Um, and uh, I mean, he thought he would have thought nothing of, of popping into the Bailey was his favourite pub for a couple of uh, black bushes over lunch and coming back to work afterwards as well. So it wasn't just down the road to, to Madigan's. He'd, he'd go further afield, no problem, mm -hmm. and occasionally drag me. All those who knew Charles say the same thing. He was great fun to be around. He had style, a wicked sense of humour, and he just loved being out and about. And if he wasn't out, he'd have people over to the Muse for wine. Parties, pre-drinks, nightcaps. He was the ultimate host who adored just being surrounded by friends. He was very generous too. Glasses were never empty in his company. And we really wanted to get a sense of who Charles was. But unsurprisingly, with the passage of time, it was hard to track down those who knew him best. But through our research, the name of another friend of his just kept cropping up. Have you spoken to Christine Falls? We were asked countless times. You need to talk to Christine Falls. Have you got a number for Christine Falls? But despite our best efforts, we couldn't track her down. And we had all but given up hope when the hand of fate tapped us on the shoulder. Hello, neighbour. Good morning. How are you? How are you? Good. You didn't have too far to come this morning. Oh, listen, the commute for this now is really taxing. Where am I going? Just Frank? upstairs there, Ashley's upstairs. Some and we'll get the kettle on, and I've some fresh pastries there as well. Oh, listen, that'll that'll just do the trick. So as it turns out, Christine Falls is my neighbour, and we only realised this connection when we got chatting at a street party over the summer. She came over, introduced herself, first name only, and I thought nothing of it. 
For some reason, she then started to share a story about her time living in Belfast, and she spoke about the looks she used to get when she told people her surname was Falls. Christine Falls. I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't wait to get a moment alone with her just to see if, on the off chance, she was the woman we'd been looking for. So I asked her, did you just say your name is Christine Falls? And naturally, she looked puzzled and slightly concerned, but she nodded in the affirmative. And I followed that up by telling her that we had been searching for her for weeks. But this is going to, I'll be dying out on this. I, so you'll be telling this story forever. You know, that it's luck sometimes rather than... Yeah. That's Anything the thing. It's, it's like it's just taking it all back to like journalism is all about people. Yeah. And, well, yes. And, and just being in the right place at the right at time. At the right time. And if that happens to be sitting out enjoying a beer in the sunshine with your neighbours. I know. I, I mean, never and as soon as I told her who I was and what I did, she cut me off, smiled warmly, and she just said, Oh, Charles. And over cold beers and spicy slices of pizza, we spoke for hours about him. Just a few days later then, she kindly agreed to make the short trip across the avenue to tell us more. Well, I suppose when I, when I met him, um, and I can't put my finger on the absolute date that I met him, um, I just took to him. Um, he, was, he, was, he, was, he had a lovely face. He had a lovely smile. He was very bubbly. He was uh, very, very sociable um, and friendly. He was generous and, and lively and gossipy and um, always impeccably groomed as well. And very out there sometimes in his choice, especially of jackets, you know. Um, you know, he wore, he'd wear bright, vivid colours. Um, and he was just, he was fun. He was, he was fun. He had, I mean, one-liners. If, if, if Charles didn't like something or didn't like something someone said, there would be an instant rejoinder and it could be withering, um, but usually very, very accurate. Um, I mean, you could have a kind of fear if you did get on the wrong side, which thankfully I didn't. Um, he really didn't give a damn about um, holding his opinion, if you like. Um, so, but he was very straight. It meant you knew where you stood with him at any given time, you know. But yes, he could. He had great put-down liners, um, a great observer of because of, of his profession as well, which, you know, a uh, designer. We were all totally aware of what he did and also the fact that he worked on the most iconic show on RTE. He was the designer for The Late Late Show. So we would have known that, but he was quite a modest man. I mean, he wasn't a, he wasn't a braggart. He wouldn't go, oh, look at me, I work on the, the Late Late. But, I mean, having said that, very confident as a man um, in terms of what he did and his talent. Charles had been out the night of his murder, and as we mentioned earlier, he also met Bill for a few drinks at lunchtime earlier that day. And here, back in the Bailey, Bill tells us about the last time he saw him. I was here, yeah, I was here, and uh, I was working for a place in Bagot Street, and uh, the previous weekend there had been really heavy snow and his car had broken down in the grounds of RTE. And he'd had a meeting that morning with his bosses and he rang me and said, uh, well, he was absolutely over the moon, he was delighted with the meeting and that he'd been given, a, he, was, or he was going to get an increase in salary and they were going to give him more work. 
and they were thrilled with his work on the Twink show and the, obviously the the figures were good so he was asked me would I go for a pint and I said yeah I'll meet you down the Bailey so we met in here um, we left here when the holy hour came to half two and I remember walking up to walking up Jocelyn Street I think he got a, a, a bus the buses went out that way towards Tunnybrook in those days and I went walk back up to work and that was the last time I saw him I remember it's etched in my mind it was about ten to three now, I loosely arranged to meet him again that night in the Bailey. Charles wanted to be out every night, basically. And uh, any night when he came home, he'd put on music videos or whatever and probably have a glass of wine. And um, he was a bit of a night owl, you know. Maybe he didn't like his own company. He didn't like to be, didn't like to be at home alone, you know. But uh, I didn't make it. I was, in fact, across the road in Davy Burns with some people that I had met and uh, I was actually across the road and I often regret that I didn't come across that maybe things would have been different you know That liquid lunch in the Bailey was the last time Bill ever spoke to or saw his friend the next thing he knew he was reading about his murder on the front pages just one week after the blizzards had passed a dark cloud descended over RTE as word spread through its corridors Charles was dead Here's Alan's memories of that day. Um, myself and uh, my now civil partner were looking to rent a house. So we were at my desk, which at that point was in part of an open plan area in the design department, uh, and looking through the ads. Uh, and another of the designers came over and just said, did you hear about Charles? What? He said he was murdered last night. And you immediately think, say that again, because I didn't hear it right. And yet you know you did. Um, and apparently, I was told afterwards, uh, I, I went purple and then white. And the rest of the day was just totally surreal. I mean, you, you, I just remember being numbed for the whole day. Um, anywhere you went, people were talking about it. Obviously, I mean, it was it was huge, and people were phoning in um, days before mobile phones again. But people um, were phoning me who had met him, uh, including my mother who had taken to him. Uh, on, a, on a level when he was at my 21st birthday party. Um, they kind of hit it off, um, fully enough. And obviously she was shocked. Various friends of Charles that I wasn't necessarily friends with, but knew through him, um, calling in. Sometimes to just say, it's not true, is it? It was probably the most surreal day of, of my life, actually. As friends and colleagues tried to come to terms with the news that Charles was dead, a team of detectives were combing his home for clues. Pools of blood were found in the living room, just a few steps from where Charles's body lay. Blood-stained footmarks were clearly visible in the carpet. Who left those? The kitchen window was open. Is that how the killer fled? 
The place had been turned upside down, with records strewn all over the floor. Some were found outside, too. One part of the cord of a red dressing gown was found tied to the leg of a chair. That was odd. Where was the other part? Christine was supposed to move in with Charles that week. She'd just broken up with her boyfriend, and he had offered to let her stay with him for a while. She, like Alan and Bill, just couldn't believe the news. I was in the RDS. It was it was a rehearsal. I remember Aggie coming in, Aggie being Agnes Burnell. And Aggie would have known Charles. She would have known. Aggie was also, in, in those days, she was very involved with fundraising for the Hirschfield Centre. And she would have been a total gay icon. So she would have had quite a high profile in the gay community in Dublin. So I remember Aggie coming in and looking quite pale. And then Aggie telling me uh, what had what had happened. And um, then um, almost no memory of any kind about uh, how things uh, went because none of it made sense. It was unbelievably shocking. I had no experience. I had never known or been close to anyone who had been murdered. So there was no roadmap for dealing with something that, that shocking. And then I remember Aggie when, because obviously she told me the guards wanted to interview me. And I remember Aggie driving me to Dunleary Garda Station. I remember as well, I'd moved a few little odds and sods into the muse and things. And I wanted to go there. And I had this instinct to just go there. Um, and of course, I wasn't going to be let in or anything, but um, I went with Aggie. And I think the, the full shock of what had happened came in when you saw the, the yellow tape and then, you know, someone coming up and saying, what's, what's your business here? Uh, what are you doing? And then just um, all of us um, uh, who knew him going into absolute shock. Now, I would have been a friend, obviously, if, if someone offers to let you stay in their home, they're a friend. But there were people who were so much uh, closer to him uh, than me. And it, it, was, it was as if a sort of numbness set in for all of us. By the time Christine was turned away from the muse in Monkstown, the murder investigation was already in full swing. Inside, Charles's body lay slumped at the bottom of the staircase. Lodged between the door and the foot of the stairs, his head resting on the first step. He suffered multiple stab wounds, 14 to be precise, six of them so vicious that the blade went straight through his body. His throat had been slashed and there was a ligature around his neck. This was total overkill. We know all about his final movements, right up to the moment when he arrives home that night. Those movements are crucial, and we'll return to them later. But what happened to Charles after he got inside his home remains a mystery to this day. One thing we know is that he wasn't alone. He brought somebody home that night, but who? And they weren't going back to an empty house either. Somebody else was there too. 
In the next episode of Inside the Crime, we're going to go inside the crime scene. Charles Safe was stabbed 14 times. It was any one of three of the injuries that were inflicted would have killed him instantly. The others he would have bled to death from. Charles was an openly gay man in 1980s Ireland, a time and place where your sexuality could cost you your job, your freedom, and even your life. What I do remember is the fearfulness that people felt that there was a murderer on the loose and somebody else might be targeted. Is that why Charles was killed? Or was this a robbery gone horribly wrong? Did he know his attacker? Or was this the act of a random, cold-blooded killer? The murder squad had leads, but were the detectives more concerned with the names in Charles's little black book than actually finding whomever killed him? They now had a map of who was who and who was connected to whom. Subscribe to Inside the Crime on the News Talk app, powered by GoLoud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more exclusive content, visit newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashleen Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart. Archive clips in this episode were from RTE.